Welcome to the podcast for the NIH seed-funded R25 Education Grant, Discovering the Value of Imaging, administered by the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be covering Section 4, titled Exemplar Clinical Machine Learning Papers. So where are we? So in the first couple of weeks, we've covered some theoretical aspects of machine learning, uh, looked at some rules of thumbs, and looked at some data sets. And today, this is our first foray into some real core clinical applications of machine learning. Um, and we're going to go really in-depth uh, and try to understand these papers, why people did what they did, and some of the ideas surrounding them, uh, and some takeaway points as well. So what did we read? We read four papers. Uh, the first is by Avadi and colleagues titled Improving Palliative Care with Deep Learning. The second is by Frizzell and colleagues titled Prediction of 30-Day All-Cause Readmissions in Patients Hospitalized for Heart Failure, Comparison to Machine Learning and Other Statistical Approaches. Third patient is by Fatoma and colleagues and Improved Multi-Output Gaussian Process RNN with Real-Time Validation for Early Sepsis Detection. And fly Miato and colleagues, deep patient and unsupervised representation to predict the future of patients from electronic health records. For this, so why these papers? Well, first of all, these are clinical data focused papers. I thought off before we get, you know, really focused radiology, let's look at some of the bigger picture and some of the other data points that are available and how people are analyzing this, uh, this kind of data. The second is to sort of be our first demonstration of several tasks of interest using these different kinds of clinical data and techniques. And finally, acquaint yourselves with a few tools and approaches uh, in your toolbox. There is a general theme that we'll be talking about as we go along through these papers. Most of them have to revolve around feature representation. So we'll be focusing on the types of features that are being input into these models and then what type of representations are being formed of the features to drive the classifications. So let's get started. Kind of went in a different order uh, in terms of reviewing this paper. So let's start with uh, predicting 30-day all-cause readmissions. So why did I choose this paper? Well, I wanted to kick off with a little bit of a potentially more tempered message. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, great work out there sort of touting how awesome machine learning is and how awesome deep learning is. Uh, and that's still the case, don't get me wrong, because we wouldn't be in this course if that wasn't the case. Um, however, I want to start with a paper that when I read it, um, I was a bit surprised. Um, this paper, I was impressed with it when I first read it because of the sort of the links that this the study uh, researchers went to and getting features and the types of features generated. And so they collected things that, you know, I've rarely seen in other papers uh, in terms of uh, for heart failure, for example, things like presenting symptoms. Uh, characteristics of the hospital, when intervention these patients got a discharge, uh, medication and IVs uh, giving during hospitalization, symptoms of discharge, uh, admission symptoms, and just characteristics of the heart failure itself. And this is always one of those uh, questions when I'm ever, you know, studying a particular problem. Like, I just, you know, sort of salivate at the idea of being able to get some of these features. And these authors were able to do it because this was part of, uh, you know, an actual clinical trial or other registry for which you're already collecting all this data anyways. Um, and so I really appreciated um, sort of this type of this approach and generating features, all the sort of possible features that you could generate if you had an expert sit down and read all the notes and do everything. And I, I really wanted to see what kind of performance you would get if you included this. And, you know, I was surprised, I have to be honest, that, you know, there wasn't a better performance. But, you know, I don't know if that's because of, you know, the features or there were some other limitations. And uh, one of the things we'll talk about at the end is what I would do to try to improve uh, this paper and maybe get better performance. Another thing I appreciate about this paper was the statistical view of the data. Um, and so uh, if you took a look at the appendix, I mean, there are just pages and pages and pages of every feature they use and what the uh, distributional statistics look like. And that's not something that you see often or actually rarely uh, in computer science papers. And that's actually one of the, uh, the features that I want to see most. Uh, because when you give me that kind of data, I can see exactly what features you chose to, to, to use, as well as exactly what encoding you use. So was it a binary classification? Was it ordinal? Uh, and that really helps me to wrap my head around what you did and, and what the limitations are. Um, so 
the authors sort of took all these features. I think there are 250 of these features, and then they ran like four or five different machine learning algorithms, uh, and some of them being quite powerful. So random forests and, and uh, uh, GBM boosting are, are two of the more powerful ones. And in general, the performances were all the same, right? About 0.61, 0.62 AUC. Um, and there are a couple reasons why this may be the case, right? One is that you know maybe this is just a hard problem. Right. So people that get CHF, you're trying to predict whether they're going to come back in 30 days. It's just simply a hard problem. And maybe that's a ceiling on performance. Um, a second potential issue could be that, you know, they just didn't have enough data. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, everything was. Yeah, there just wasn't enough data uh, to build models that could identify uh, people that would be readmitted uh, more often uh, than not. Um, a third reason may be that, you know, they were just limited in their features. Uh, and that's certainly possible too. Uh, and we'll go into a couple more reasons uh, in a second. Uh, and then the th fourth is maybe they just didn't use powerful enough algorithms. Uh, and so, you know, some of these deep learning algorithms that we'll be talking about in the later uh, sections, one of their primary features is that they can take these features and sort of build, you know, and feature engineer and build their own sub features that could be highly predictive. And that might be, have been useful here. So what would I have done to improve this model? Uh, well, a couple things could have been done. The first is, you know, better subsetting. Um, so, you know, they were looking for all-cause readmission, right? And you could sort of think and conceptualize in your mind as an idea how that could be difficult. Uh, and so you might have someone who looks like, you know, they're definitely going to be readmitted uh, and they come in, uh, you know, but they are readmitted, you know, for some other reason or a reason that's not related to their heart failure. So even though you collected all these heart failure uh, um, features, right, to do the the, the, the prediction, uh, it ends up none of those matter because they got readmitted for something that's completely unrelated. Um, and that, that could be a problem. Uh, the second thing that I would do is to uh, focus on uh, a specific time. Uh, so they did, I think, 2005 through 2012 or something like that. And maybe there's enough time to focus just on 2001 and 2012 and, you know, group those together. Um, and the reason to do that would be to try to be a little bit more homogenous in maybe the treatment patterns. So maybe we're doing things eight years ago that's different than we we're doing two years ago. And by focusing on time horizon that was two years old, and especially, you know, when Medicaid, so Medicare changed their rules regarding readmissions, maybe you could get better performance uh, doing it that way as well. Another thing I would do to try to improve uh, feature, the performance of this model is what I call sort of improved feature characterization. Uh, one thing that's missing in this analysis is sort of time-based evolution of features. So they take a snapshot of when this patient comes in and when they leave, but there's not much else concerning, you know, what they was happening before they came to that visit. You know, did they have prior readmissions? Um, how sick were they? Did they have a lot of outpatient visits, right? And you could imagine that, over time, like that kind of information would be very, very useful for trying to determine whether someone would be admitted in the next 30 days. So that's one of the first things I would do is to sort of add more features that are related to the trajectories that these patients are on uh, and seeing whether that would improve classification performance. Another would be to sort of get more at the nuances of the diagnoses and maybe some of the medications or the things that were done. Uh, and so specifically for the drugs, so rather than just saying, oh, they got this drug and they didn't get that drug, you know, add some of the dosage information, right? So someone that gets a high dose of Lasix, right, is probably is different than a person that gets, you know, a lower dose of Lasix. And they probably shouldn't be compared to each other as just, yes, they both have Lasix because that's an indication of how severe someone's disease is. And that could be predictive of readmission. Um, and the third thing would be, um, you know, any notion of severity for any of the diseases. Um, and some of this is accounted for already. Um, and I can't recall. So, for example, with uh, diabetes, um, you know, well, how severe is their diabetes, right? Um, and I can't recall if insulin was one of the drugs, uh, medications that's considered. Um, but, you know, that would be an indication where, and I think it was actually. Uh, but, you know, if someone um, had, you know, sequelae from uh, that dose diabetes or you had some way of quantifying how severe uh, that disease was, maybe that could be also indicative uh, of readmission rather than just saying, oh, yeah, the person has diabetes. Because we know that someone who is well-controlled who has diabetes is very different than someone who's not well-controlled as well as someone who's actually had complications uh, from that disease process. Um, and then the last thing I would do is sort of think about better representation. 
Um, and so, you know, in this case, they just sort of took all the variables of interest and, you know, they binarized some and kept some as continuous and they put it in the classifier and it sort of uh, let it do its, you know, classification. And as we read about, I think in week one, when we read the Domingo's paper about sort of how these all different algorithms work and essentially they all create sort of the same sort of hyperplane to separate the data. And that's kind of what I would expect here, too. Um, I was surprised, you know, the, as we know, the random forest algorithm is good at learning nonlinear relationships, whereas logic regression is really focused on linear relationships. Uh, and so we didn't get much boost from this data from using this random forest for nonlinear relationships. Um, so it made me think that the data set does, just doesn't have a lot of sort of nonlinear relationships to each other. Um, and usually, uh, yeah, and in my experience, when you do apply random force, you do tend to get a little bit better performance. Um, but in this case, it was very little, and, and so I was a little bit surprised by that. But this would also be an opportunity where you know deep learning could uh, provide a lot of uh, boost. Um, you know, in this instance, there are a lot of variables, there are a lot of overlap between the variables, you know, things that do sort of similar things or indicate similar things. So like if someone has the diagnosis code of diabetes and is on insulin for diabetes, well, you know, then they have diabetes, right? Uh, and some of the papers, uh, two of the papers that we'll review a little bit later, uh, you know, sort of exploit this idea of, you know, combining these features, but doing it in a data-driven fashion, right? Letting the, the data sort of try to make these relationships for us rather than us having to hand engineer that these two things are related. Um, so I would love to, you know, get a hold of this data set and try some deep learning techniques to see if I can improve uh, the classification performance. Because in that case, you know, I'm no longer trying to combine features. The algorithm is essentially learning itself, right? What features and how and what combinations of them are actually uh, predictive. So let's move on to the next paper. Uh, so the next paper is uh, Approving uh, Palliative Care with Deep Learning. Uh, this was recently published, I think, like eight weeks ago. Um, and I included it here because I thought it was, um, I think it's a nice uh, use case. Um, it's a nice case of sort of taking a conglomeration of data similar to the congestive heart failure study and applying deep learning and actually demonstrating, you know, that you can get pretty good features out of it. The nice thing, an interesting thing about this is that number one paper that I don't see it as often in these uh, more technical papers, number one, they had a specific use case of mine. Um, and in this case, it was trying to uh, prioritize palliative care resources toward, you know, identifying dying patients so that, you know, they can get the right, um, uh, they, they can get the right uh, opportunities and, and, and documents in order, you know, for their death and, and other palliative care um, initiatives. Uh, and the second reason I thought about this problem was that it's just a hard problem for humans. Um, you know, if you ask a human whether a patient's going to die in the next three three months to a year, it's actually pretty hard. Uh, and some, and, you know, there's some research to show that, um, you know, yeah, we're just not trained to, to, to make this kind of uh, inference. And, and we also tend to overestimate, you know, when we're thinking about this thing. Uh, and so to have a computer do it is really, really powerful because we, we would think, right, aside from the biases that may be in the data, uh, that, you know, this computer is fairly objective in its application uh, of its rules and its internal thinking toward identifying people that will die. Uh, and that's pretty powerful. Um, so there were a couple uh, challenges uh, and sort of interesting ideas, right, uh, in this uh, paper, and I'll just highlight them one at a time. Um, so one of uh, the interesting ideas was this idea of data representation. And so they took uh, observation windows of time. So I think they like look 30 days. So they took a time, a prediction time, and then they built features sort of 30 days ago and 60 days ago and 90 days ago and I think 120 days ago and or sort of at, at a non-uniform interval um, before. And, and I really like this idea because, you know, it sort of um, penalizes data that happened a long time ago versus, um, you know, giving advantage to, to data that was captured more recently. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why this model does well, you know, aside from uh, all of the, you know, deep learning and, and feature combination, was the data representation seemed to make sense, right? If someone's deteriorating, you know, soon, uh, to, uh, soon to the prediction time, you know, you want to take that into account. And if you just have one huge time horizon of a year collecting all that data, you know, it's almost impossible for you to figure that out. 
Another idea that I liked was this uh, area under the precision recall curve. Um, and so, as y'all know, uh, you know, AUC or uh, the receiver operating curve uh, as a measure of discriminatory performance, right? And that's what we use uh, to see whether medical tests uh, and how discriminative or sensitive and specific they are. And so when we're running a machine learning model, right, we always have to have an objective that we're trying to optimize against. Uh, and so most of the time it's AUC because we're just trying to optimize discriminatory performance. But in this case, we're interested in AU, uh, the area under the procedure recall curve, right? And I appreciated this thinking because it's thinking about the outcome, right? It's thinking about what are we going to do for these patients. Um, and the procedure recall curve is good here because it can say, look, um, you have resources, you know, yeah, your palliative care team can, you know, follow up on 30 patients per day, right? And so by optimizing for the precision recall curve, I'm essentially optimizing uh, to reduce the false positives, right? And the top ranked uh, um, um, patients. And so rather than, you know, optimizing the precision recall or the receiver operating curve, right, which can make your classification improve in areas uh, that you don't care about, um, the AUPRC, the precision recall curve, will optimize for patients that you do care about, right? It's going to try to reduce the number of false positives in, in, in the higher ranks. And so that's a, an idea that I, that I really liked uh, and thought it was useful. A third thing of interest um, is this sort of spillover um, of the target. Um, and so the target here is, you know, mortality, right? Um, and this is very useful, right? Um, but the interesting thing about some of these models, and we actually have a, a mortality model that we've implemented at our institution, is that even though they're designed for a specific use case, they, they sometimes have uh, sort of by proxy other uh, useful um, um, uh, uses. So, for example, you know, I'm predicting mortality. However... I can also have, also have the model, uh, you know, identify patients just, you know, how sick they are, right? And so sickness is a different thing than mortality, uh, but it tends to be that when we look at the patients at the top ranks, even if they don't die, you know, in the time period that we want, the patients still do tend to be sick. And that's something to keep in mind, you know, when we're building these models, that even though we don't get perfect performance for identifying mortality, the patients that do get identified highly, right, that do score highly, you know, those people are still pretty sick, Right. And we see that in our data and we see that when we validate, you know, the results is that, oh, yeah, the top ranked people, you know, the positive predictive value is pretty high. But even for the ones and even for the false positives, they're not really false positives because those patients are pretty sick, too. And, and in our experience, we've actually had the false positive identified where you know, the patients, you know, didn't die in like in a two month time frame, but they died at like three months. Right. And even though our target was for two months. And the other idea of note in this paper is uh, model explanation. Um, so they use in this ablation technique, uh, essentially where they take an instance, right? Then they remove a feature, see what it does to the classification, add it back in, then remove another feature, see what it does to the classification, and add it back in. And the idea is that if you remove a feature and the classification drops a lot, that feature must be really, really useful, you know, for the classification. And that provides some explanation back to the user on um, how the model is performing. Um, and I think this is an important point um, just because, you know, sometimes these machines are black boxes uh, and we don't really know what's going on. Uh, and so by having a system that can explain a little bit at the instance level for what it's doing, I think that's useful uh, and can help a user sort of judge what to do and, and, and how to take into account this information in their own uh, in their own and incorporate that with other uh, information about the patient and other factors. In the imaging world, um, you know, there's also model explanation as well. Uh, you know, and some of the studies I think that we'll see next time sort of use heat maps, right? And they put heat maps over the the image to show you to, to show you where the computer is thinking. You know, the problems are. And I think that's where a lot of the transformation of practice will happen is just basically allowing you to quickly highlight areas, you know, that you think are of interest uh, and going straight to those areas. And that's dissimilar to some of the computer-aided detection work that's, that's already been going on in, you know, mammography, for example, for a very long time. Um, so, yeah, that's what I thought about that paper. Uh, and so let's move on to our next one. The next paper we're going to look at is Deep Patient. And this is another paper that uses electronic health records uh, data. 
specifically, it uses things like such as clinical notes, uh, diagnoses, medications, lab tests, demography, um, etc. Puts it in a huge matrix uh, and attempts to apply some deep learning algorithms to predict multiple outcomes. There are several ideas of uh, interest in this paper, uh, and we're going to talk about each of them in turn. One of them is building good features, uh, how they deal with noisy data, uh, sparsity in the representation of the notes, uh, sparsity in the number of patients with records, sparsity in the features themselves, and finally, the granularity ICD-9 codes. So let's talk about each of these ideas in time uh, and uh, one at a time and see what solutions they came up with it, uh, for it. So one is building good features. Um, as we talked about in the prior paper, uh, you know, one of the uh, most important things about deep learning is that it can sort of try to figure out how to feature engineer features by itself if you give it enough data and, and so that we don't have to build them on their own. And so um, they do this using these things called uh, uh, stacking denoising um, autoencoders, uh, which you know we'll talk about in a second. And again, that's the most powerful thing about these machine learning and about these deep learning models is being able to sort of build features automatically without uh, domain experts having to sit down and do it. The second thing that they've uh, dealt with is noisy data. Um, so electronic health record data is notoriously uh, messy. Um, you know, there's lots of um, vagaries in terms of, you know, what kind of data is recorded, uh, who records the data, uh, who writes it, uh, you know, when vitals are obtained, you know, how are they obtained, who puts it into the computing system. Uh, and so in general, uh, electronic health record data is not nearly to close to what I'd say a gold standard. And, and at most, it's sort of like a silver standard. And so they deal with this noisy data using the thing called uh, denoising autoencoders. Um, and what denoising autoencoders do is they take sort of a partially corrupt input, uh, and the goal is to create a representation such that you can recover the original undistorted signal uh, from the data. Um, and the good representation uh, is one that can be obtained robustly from a corrupted input, and that would be useful for recovering the corresponding clean input. What you may have read in some of the reading uh, in the paper is that you know uh, you don't only specify the number of layers of this network, but you also have a factor where you actually corrupt the data itself. So you take an input, and you know, and I think in this case they took five percent of the data and just you know made them zeros. So if a person was on insulin, now they're off insulin. Right. And they would do this randomly. Um, so that way, the model is forced to learn relationships, you know, in the presence of having, uh, you know, noisiness um, in the data. And what it ends up doing is creating a compact representation uh, of the data that as close as possible to reconstruct the input. Uh, so one way to think about this is imagine that you know we have two nodes. One node is whether a person has insulin. The other node is whether a person has a diagnosed code of diabetes. And so this is actually pretty redundant, right, to have both. And I could collapse that into a single representation of a patient simply having diabetes. Uh, this is also known as a latent variable, right, in the sense that there is a variable that connects these two other uh, variables. Uh, and so that's sort of in a very high level what these autocoders try to do is they try to sort of match up concepts and try to collapse them, you know, into smaller concepts, uh, um, uh, sort of higher level concepts. It's a more compact representation, uh, representation of the noise. And so the authors deal with this noisy data by, you know, using these denoising autoencoders, including this, you know, randomly zeroing um, uh, feature of these models uh, to try to, you know, sort of all, not only include the noise that's uh, normally generated by just the recording process, but also to introduce that through the modeling process and through the actual uh, convergence of these algorithms uh, to a, a representation. Another idea that they do here is uh, looking at the sparsity and the representation of the notes of an individual patient. Um, and so this is something that we always do for these projects. You know, uh, so we always you know, try to pick a threshold uh, where we'll exclude patients. And in this case, they looked at patients who had less than five notes and simply removed those uh, from the data set. Uh, and I think that's 
you know, very reasonable to do. The only thing to keep in mind when you do this is that what it means is that operationally, if you were ever to deploy this model, you know, it's really only guaranteed to work on patients who have at least five notes because that's the sort of inclusion criteria of your model. So that's something to keep in mind, you know, as you're doing this type of analysis. Um, and I think it's very sensible, you know, just to choose a threshold below which, you know, you're just going to throw out the patients who don't, who don't uh, match that uh, threshold. Another issue is sparsity in the features. Um, so uh, imagine, you know, there's a, a clinical note, right, about a patient. Uh, um, and that clinical note, you know, in the full vocabulary of all notes, right? So imagine there's a vocabulary that includes every potential possible concept, right, in medicine. How many times will your patient in that one note, how, you know, what percentage of all concepts of medicine is that patient going to have in, in their, uh, in their note? And it's probably very small. I mean, it's, we're talking like, you know, less than 1% of all the conceivable, uh, concepts in medicine is going to be represented, uh, you know, in that one note. And we call that sparsity, right? Sparsity uh, in the features. So each row and in, in the matrix itself, right? If, if, if the columns are the individual words or concepts and the rows are the patients, right? This is extremely sparse, right? There's zeros everywhere. And then, you know, ones, uh, you know, and then some of those concepts are sort of on, right? Or one or binary on one, you know, very few patients. Um, and so another trick that we'll do in these type of analysis is we'll sort of uh, make sure that there's enough data within each column. Uh, and in this case, they look for features that are more than 80%, you know, of the patients. And, and, and if there are, then they throw those out. Uh, and then if you're fewer than 5%, um, of all the patients then they remove those from the data set as well. And so, uh, in the, in the former, we were, uh, re reducing sparsity in the number of rows, right. By removing patients who have less than five notes. In this case, we're trying to, uh, induce, uh, make the number of features or the number of concepts uh, that we're identifying more compact by removing concepts that just either have too much data in them or too few. The last thing that uh, we do in these type of studies is trying to come up with the right granularity of ICDs. Um, as you know, in former IC9, it's very large. I think there's like 34,000 codes. Um, and, you know, a lot of the codes have overlap and they're with incre increasing specificity as you go deeper in the tree. Uh, and so to get to useful representations, we'll do things like using groupers. Uh, and so in the text of this paper, they did use several groupers to get up to like 78 disease states uh, that they could predict from. Um, something also, some notes on the side about the representation and data cleaning of this data. I really appreciated how much detail they went into into what they actually did and how they encoded the data. And, and I'll just repeat it here just so that, you know, we can uh, sort of consider the technologies that are being used uh, to do the annotations to identify concepts. Because I think these will be useful for your own work, you know, if you ever end up using, you know, medical records and especially free text. Um, so, uh, just to recall, they use diagnoses, medications, procedures, lab tests, and clinical notes. Uh, they use something called the Open Biomedical Annotator, uh, which will be a, a link uh, that I'll post up here to normalize the procedures, labs, medication, and concepts from the free text notes, all in sort of sort of you know the same representation of the same vocabulary. And they also used uh, a, a negation detector. Uh, so, you know, if there's a sentence that says, you know, there's no evidence of pneumonia, right? Just because the concept of pneumonia appears there doesn't mean they had it because it's actually negated. So there's an, a, an algorithm called a NegX, which is a negation detection, which essentially identifies all the different patterns of ways that people say that something isn't there. Um, and they apply this to the concepts, remove those concepts that aren't there. Uh, and they went further in terms of reducing family history uh, sections. Uh, so, you know, if your family has diabetes, that doesn't mean you have diabetes. Um, and then finally, uh, they did something called topic modeling. Um, so as I referred to earlier, you know, the, any individual patient, you know, out of the, all the possible concepts that exist in medicine will have very few concepts just themselves. Um, and so what topic modeling tries to do is it tries to sort of group together across the data set in an unsupervised manner, right? So you don't actually tell it, you know, how to group the data. Uh, it'll sort of group together uh, different clusters of concepts. 
Um, and so, you know, aside from the mathematical details, just to say that um, it will convert this really sparse representation where there's very few, tons of zeros in any row and very few ones into a more compact, dense representation. So in this case, they choose 300 topics, right? And that's the number of, uh, of representations that they have. And those are, are actually probabilities uh, that represent uh, that, that represent how likely it is that this topic generated this uh, this note. So, for example, if someone has diabetes, um, you know there might be a, a diabetic-like um, topic uh, that's not defined, but it is defined by the words in it. So you'd see words like insulin, type two, type one. You know, maybe juvenile, uh, maybe he will go in A1C glucose, glucose tolerance test, and those type of things. And, and, and that's all generated completely automatically, you know, by the system. Um, it's not typically as clear cut as that, you know, like it's not going to be a, a list that has just all those specific words. And, you know, it's, you know, definitely diabetes. But what the topic model allows us to do is it allows us to summarize uh, in a computational manner all the concepts, you know, that seem to appear in this data set and have the machine try to figure out what are the groups uh, to put together. Um, so, you know, to close off, uh, to, to sort of finish up this one, um, you know, so they did an evaluation. They were evaluated by disease. Uh, and so uh, they were able to build a, uh, a training set up to 2013. And then they would take patients in the 2014 range. Uh, and I think, I'm assuming the prediction time is like January 2014. They would take all the data before January 2014, give that to the model, and to predict whether they get the diagnosis uh, in that following year. And they got pretty high performances, uh, 0.773 uh, AU, uh, area under the curve in table one. But it's important to keep in mind that this is an average across all diseases. So they do a specific disease calculation uh, in table two. And you can see in that in some instances, they perform uh, exceptionally well. Um, so I think for diabetes, they get an AUC of uh, 0.9, um, you know, cancer of rectum and anus 0.887, and so on and so forth. So it's really, really, uh, you know, really uh, good performance. Um, I'm a little bit, you know, somewhat dismayed that they didn't necessarily compare to uh, a baseline. Um, so, for example, if I just look for the words diabetes uh, and hemoglobin and look at the hemoglobin A1C value for diabetes and metastatic complications, like what kind of performance do I get there? Uh, and, you know, how close is it to 0 0.907? Uh, and the second evaluation point they did is they, they looked at it by patient. Uh, so they used this measure called precision at K, uh, which is a number of correct diagnoses when K diagnoses are suggested, right? So I give the, uh, the model all the data from 2013, and it, it spits out uh, the number of diagnoses uh, in specific time frames, right? So in this case, they looked uh, 30 days in advance and then said, okay, well, what diagnoses did this patient get in the next 30 days? Uh, and then 60 days, and then 90 days, 180 days. Um, and so uh, that's what percentage of K is, is that out of the number of diagnoses that were suggested that this patient had at, say, 30 days, how many of those are correct diagnoses? How many of those diagnoses they actually got, uh, you know, when you look at the gold standard? Um, and in this case, uh, you know, they had 55% correct predictions when suggesting three or more diseases per patient um, in each time frame. And that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome, right? That's pretty good performance in terms of being able uh, to predict what diagnoses a patient uh, may have gotten. Uh, and being fit right about 55% of the time. And the last comment I make is that, you know, time is not really considered uh, in, in this um, analysis at all. I think they just took all of 2013 and every data, you know, or all the data between 2013 and 2000, uh, let's see, 11, I think, or 2000, uh, let's see. Oh, let's see, uh, between 1980 and 2014. Um, and so, and then they just sort of aggregated all the features um, in terms of medications, diagnoses, labs, clinical notes, all during that time period uh, to try to make the prediction in 2014. And so, in contrast to the palliative care paper, you know, where they chose observation windows to generate features with the idea that observations that are closer to prediction time are more relevant than diagnoses that happened a long time ago. Um, you know, in this paper, they didn't really consider that at, at all. 
Um, and so that's a nice lead into our next paper, uh, which is their early types paper, because there they do uh, take time into account. They do use something called a recurrent neural network, uh, which is very good at modeling sort of time series and sequential data and able to get really great performance uh, for detecting early sepsis through that. Um, so we'll move on to the next paper um, actually right now. So uh, this next paper uh, is about early sepsis detection. Um, and so I, I wanted to present this paper because it shows you a little bit different uh, sort of take on the electronic health record. Uh, in this case, is looking at, you know, sort of more telemetry type uh, data, uh, vitals uh, and medications uh, and being sort of more event driven. Um, and so there are a couple of challenges in this data set, and, and similar uh, to Deep Patient, I thought we'd sort of look at each of the challenges uh, and then see what they did to sort of try to solve that. Um, so one is uh, time zero is not definable. So, you know, when someone gets starts to be treated for sepsis, we don't actually know when they got sepsis, uh, right? And so trying to define that time zero is, 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 not, is not clear. Um, time series, right, how we deal with time series. Uh, and all the previous work, um, you know, we sort of, in the deep patient, uh, in the palliative care work, you know, we just sort of chose arbitrary windows of time to collect data. And the deep patient work, they didn't consider time series at all. And so what's their approach here uh, for doing that? Um, how do we deal with regular intervals? Uh, you know, patients that are more sick, right, get more measurements. Patients that aren't as sick don't get less me measurements. Uh, another issue is how do we deal with informative missingness, right? And again, back to that previous sentence I just said, you know, patients that aren't sick just don't get measurements, right? So the fact they don't get measurements is important. Um, how do we integrate clinical interventions um, into the analysis? And then how do we build good features? Um, so this work is an expansion of uh, work on a prior method. Uh, and it sort of brings several sens uh, uh, sensible ideas to uh, improve the classifier. So what do we do about uh, time zero sort of not, uh, so let's just go through those sort of uh, challenges and, and see what these authors did. So time zero not definable. So they do something interesting here called target replication. Uh, and so having the definition of sepsis be when, you know, an order is put in for uh, you know, putting someone on a sepsis protocol is great. And so what they've done is so they say, well, you know, maybe sepsis happened a little bit before. And so they'll literally replicate the um, target for the two hours prior uh, or the two hours prior to that and just say, look, you know, rather than targeting the exact time when this intervention started, we're going to assume with noise, right, because it's not exact, uh, a set time in advance that we're actually going to consider what that patient looked like, say, f you know, four hours before that. And that's what we're going to try to target and tell the machine to sort of classify over. In terms of uh, the irregular intervals, uh, the authors use this thing called a, a Gaussian uh, process, a multitask Gaussian process. And it essentially sort of fills in, uh, you know, sort of all the values. Uh, and it's, it has a nice property that, if you have a cluster of measurements, right, then you know that your measurement's pretty good uh, in that area and you can have confidence sort of intervals that are fairly tight. But then if you're in an area where there has very, been few, very few measurements, you actually see the confidence intervals expand and not see much uh, information there. Um, the authors, in terms of the missingness, do uh, create a dummy variable uh, for each uh, feature to say whether it's present or not. Uh, rather than relying on, you know, sort of having a, a measurement or not. Uh, and so through that, adding just that one feature, right, that says whether uh, this feature is missing or not, they're able to capture an explicit uh, column or explicit feature that says that, you know, that maybe you should take the missingness into account sort of as you're, as you're building these models. Um, how do they model the uh, time series? Um, so they use something called a recurrent neural network. Uh, and so these recurrent neural networks are very, very powerful. Um, and they're very good at mod uh, modeling sequential data. Uh, and even cooler is that they will model data that happened in the past and it'll sort of keep its attention or you know be able to keep information about things that were important in the past and how many times have they occurred in the past and only propagate 
things through to the actual classification uh, node or you know part of the network. Uh, and so these are very powerful, and I won't get into too many details about the side from the set. The, the, the takeaway here is that if you're going to be using time series, think about using a recurrent neural network uh, because it will design those features and all that stuff for you, uh, and it can be very, very powerful. And in this case, it's even more powerful because, you know, they take all the feature types that are in that area and combine them together uh, into one node um, of, of that recurrent neural network. Uh, to take into account that information. So I think this is in figure, uh, let's see, yes, figure two um, of that paper where they show this, you know, deep recurrent neural network. And at each time point, they show labs and labs and baseline and medications uh, that are put into the unit at each time. And then all of those, all that prior information uh, um, sort of, um, it's taken into consideration to make the final diagnosis, right? Whether this patient is receptive or septic or not at the current time. Um, so, uh, what are some other? Uh, so, yeah. So that's kind of how they work through, you know, some of those uh, challenges uh, through some specific remedies um, in this paper. Uh, and experimentally, they did a couple interesting things too. First, um, you know, they didn't really use any explicit inclusion or exclusion criteria, which actually makes this problem a lot harder because the population is very heterogeneous. So, you know, they didn't say, well, you know, we're just going to focus on patients that have this disease or that disease. And they really let the classifier do its very best as it possibly could. Uh, one thing to note is that the case control matching is somewhat arbitrary. Um, you know, so they would take an... Uh, uh, an admission time and then a time when that patient was developed sepsis. And then they would take a control patient and go forward in time for that stay and find that exact time uh, for that stay and then consider that data as a match control. Um, and that's a little bit arbitrary, um, you know, and honestly, I can't really come up with a, an alternative approach. So at, at least here, you know, it seems to be a reasonable approach and at least it gives us some, you know, measure of performance um, that we can use. Uh, and then two things that I really liked about this paper was sort of this match look back uh, validation that they did. Uh, so they sort of went back in time at a particular time point to see uh, when they could, uh, you know, make the classification. And I think this is in figure uh, four or figure three. Yes. So in figure three, um, you know, they have uh, hours before sepsis on the x-axis. And then the false alarms per, uh, per true alarm uh, by method uh, for fixed sensitivity on the y-axis. Um, and this is really cool because it, it really says how far in advance, given a particular false alarm and a true alarm rate, can actually identify whether someone actually becomes septic. Uh, and the other analysis I appreciated was the analysis uh, in figure uh, four. Uh, where they're looking at this sort of real-time validation scheme, and they show how the false alarm and true alarm uh, rate changes um, as, um, let's see, yeah, depending on what uh, uh, model you're using. Um, and I really appreciate that because, you know, when we're trying to apply these models at the, uh, at the point of care, that's ultimately what we care about, right, is that when the model fires, uh, what's a positive predictive value, right? Uh, how many patients do I have to identify? What's the number needed to treat? to actually identify or, or to re reduce sepsis. Um, and so in this case, I mean, it's pretty awesome, I think. I mean, I think four hours in advance, if we inspect uh, figure three here uh, on the far right, um, it looks like, like even four hours before sepsis, I can have 1.5 false alarms for every true alarm, one true alarm. And that's an awesome ratio, right? So if I, every time the model fires, I'm essentially, you know, 30, 35% sure that this patient's gonna develop sepsis. And it seems like there's something that we could do interventionally, right, to sort of prevent that one person from actually getting sepsis. Um, and, I, and in this paper, they don't go into details into what the experimental me method may be. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we're actually working on at our institution is trying to figure out some core interventions that should occur, you know, at that time in advance. So that sort of completes, um, you know, our four papers and, uh, and it's a little bit longer episode uh, than others. Um, but let's get into the questions uh, that we have for this week. Uh, so for the readmission of CHF patient, one question is, well, why do you think is the reason that the machine learning algorithms do not improve the prediction? Um, 
And I think there's two answers to this question. The first is that, you know, uh, well, a couple answers. The one is, um, you know, maybe it's just a really hard problem, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so, um, you know, we just can't predict well because we just, you know, don't know. Uh, it's just not a, a, a problem that's amenable to good prediction. Um, the second is, um, you know, all the machine learning algorithms do relatively the same thing. Essentially, they're trying to find a hyperplane, right, a, a space that can divide the data into those that were emitted and those that were not. And so the fact that all the algorithms perform about the same just means that the representation or the, the plane that's, that's being identified, it must be generally all the same uh, and with not much difference in between. Now, the only reason, the only way that you can really change that representation uh, is by doing feature engineering, right? Coming up with new features that are sort of non-linearly related to each other. Um, and so that's one of the uh, opportunities that we talked about before in terms of improving this model would be to actually, um, you know, use some sort of deep learning algorithm or look at those uh, values more closely, look at the features more closely and see if you can actually generate, you know, using domain knowledge, some new features that would be informative. Um, another question was, uh, whether we should have, whether the, the question should have, rather than all cause re-emission, should have just been re-emission for CHF. And, and I, and I agree with this comment a hundred percent, uh, they should have just focused on readmission for CHF and tried to do that prediction rather than just doing all causes, uh, and they might've gotten better performance. And actually it's better to, to create a model that's, in my opinion, it's better to create a model that's more specific than a model that's uh, more general because when you're that specific, you can at least come up with interventions on the intervention side to deal with that one problem, right? So if you know that someone's at risk for uh, readmission for CHF, you know, if you have other care managers or other folks downstream, you can give them specific just instructions on like, you know, the things that could potentially bring that patient back in. So, you know, watching their fluid, you know, being hypervigilant on their LASIX and, and other things so to make sure they don't come back in, you know, for that reason. The next question was about deep patient. Uh, and the question was, is there any downside or potential danger in using deep patient to predict future outcome, uh, such as survival? Um, you know, I mean, these classifiers just do what they do, right? With a given performance and a given sort of false positive and true positive rate. Um, I think the answer is of whether there's any downside or potential danger really has to do with the intervention side and the things that are actually being done for these patients that are identified. Um, and there, you know, certainly bad things can happen. Um, so, you know, and not in this example, but the sepsis example for, uh, that, uh, from the sepsis model. Um, you know, if you do this prediction, say, you know, eight hours in advance and the care team comes to the bed and they look at the patient and, you know, the patient looks totally well, right? And anecdotally, we've, we've had anecdotes from some of my colleagues of models running like this. They go see the patient and the patient looks totally well, right? And so the computer is essentially seeing something that, that maybe the, the, the physicians haven't quite picked up yet. And so if you do an intervention there, right, start giving antibiotics, start fluid overloading this person, get the fluids in this person, and that could have potential side effects, right, uh, even though this patient doesn't look sick. And so in these instances, I think that's part of the excitement of the new science that we're generating here is to try to figure out, well, what do you do in those situations when a model is telling you something, but you can't corroborate it with your own observation of what's going on with this patient? So what are you going to do? Right. Uh, and I think that's part of what we need to do in this next phase is to figure out what we're going to clinically do for in these type of situations. The next question was involving uh, improving palliative care with deep learning. Uh, the mortality, the question is the mortality of predicted range from three to 12 months. Is this appropriate? Uh, and the answer is, uh, I mean, it depends on the intervention, right? Of what you want to do. Um, you know, if the recommendation is, um, you know, let's, you know, have a conversation with them about their advanced directives, uh, then yeah, absolutely. You know, it seems really important, uh, you know, to do that. If the conversation is, um, you know, about a hip or knee replacement, right. And you're predicted to die in three to 12 months, you know, I mean, is that appropriate, right. After you include rehab and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, does it improve your quality of life, you know, to get that surgery. Um, and so uh, whether something is appropriate or not, is totally dependent, again, on the interventions that are being designed. Uh, and remember, the model is just going to predict for a range and it's still always on the clinical person to decide what they're going to do um, and, and how they're going to react to that information. And so, you know, that's a flexibility of these models, too, is that, you know what, maybe you don't care about 3 to 12 months. Maybe you care about 3 to 6 or 6 to 9 or 9 to 12 or 6 to 12 or whatever. 
Now, all you have to do is just change the targets and we can rebuild the models using that new range. And then you can go, you know, and do your intervention uh, for that time period as you see fit. And that's part of the nice flexibility of these models uh, and, and these methodologies. Another question is, can this model be used to predict mortality in healthy patients? Um, and the answer is um, probably no. Um, and the reason I say probably no is because of the way the data is represented. And if you think about in the palliative care model, um, you know, what they're doing is they're taking the diagnoses and the medications, the labs and those things that happen prior to the prediction, prediction date. Um, and so if a patient is healthy, right, and there's no trajectory to think that they're going to die, I think it would be really hard for a model to be able to predict that that patient is going to die because the model is specifically relying on a trajectory of diagnosis and medications and labs to do the prediction in the next three to 12 months. Um, so that's kind of, I, I think it would be hard. Um, and, uh, and, in the, and, and mostly limited by the features uh, and how they represent uh, the data uh, for defining uh, mortality in the next three to 12 months. And the last question was, with this algorithm, the patient has suspected such, will they proactively treat with antibiotics without a culture? Um, so this is a great question, uh, and it goes back to the core of how machine learning and AI is potentially will transform medicine, right? Because at the end of the day, all these machines are doing is just providing recommendation about what's going to happen in the future. And we still have to decide what to do about that. Um, and as I was alluding to, uh, from, you know, my colleagues, like, yeah, there are patients, you know, where the clinical team will show up and they'll look at the patient and say, you know, this patient looks fine. I mean, and I don't, and, you know, we're not really trained to know what to do in that situation. Uh, only when people present with symptoms and, and the literature is based on that, right? Simply because I mean, you can't treat something if you don't, if you can't tell it's happening. Um, and so, you know, in that case, you know, when people hit the search criteria or whatnot, right, you can give them the antibiotics, you can give them fluids, and you can start sort of the standard of care. In this instance, when you have models that are firing so far in advance, uh, we really don't know what the right thing to do is. Uh, and I think it's going to take some concerted, uh, you know, sort of randomized controlled trials, uh, multi-center studies using set interventions to try to really figure this out and how to really change these trajectories. But I'm optimistic. Um, you know, if we look at the profile and figure, I think figure one of this paper uh, where they show an example patient and the trajectory they're on, um, you know, it may not be that the computer is actually recognizing that something is happening you know, before everyone else does. Uh, it may just be that this model helps to bring attention, the physician's attention to a pertinent issue so that they can deal with it right then, right? Uh, and, you know, and especially in an ICU setting where there's all kinds of things going on and, you know, any individual patient, you know, unless you start thinking about them specifically, you know, maybe work on other things, like, you know, there's value in this model sort of saying, hey, like, hey, look, look at me, look at me, you know, there's this patient that has something going on, you know, please to think about them for a moment and see whether, you know, there's something we can do for them. Um, so great. So uh, that's all the questions I had this week. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, this one went a little bit longer, but uh, we just had some really great papers to cover and I was really excited to talk about them. Um, and as we get more technical, um, you know, I'm going to have RTA sort of fill in more of the, the glossary so, we, you know, we can remember these terms. Uh, and also, I'm hoping that we can have more discussion uh, at the in-person session uh, and go from there. So thank you very much. And until next week, take care. Bye-bye.